You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. Again, it's awesome to spend time with you wherever you're listening to this from, whatever you're doing right now. Um, Our prayer, sincerely, is that the Holy Spirit would continue to um, stir your life, that he would continue uh, to partner with you in fanning the flames of your faith. Our church is driven by a mandate to uh, provoke a deep hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus in our lives and in your life. And so uh, I hope, we hope that these podcast teachings are helping to drive you deeper into the presence of Jesus, to deepen your faith and stir in you a greater desire to cultivate in you and provoke in you a greater desire Uh, to walk in intimacy with Jesus, to walk in step with the Spirit in your life. This is James part two, and um, I just want to say before I hand this off um, that these are larger passages, and man, there's so much content that I would wish to have gotten to. I didn't. I've debated on whether or not we should just extend these podcast series, like do some multiple episodes per week. I don't really have the capacity or the time to do that in the midst of the other pastoral responsibilities that I'm carrying. So I'm going to leave it at that. But I just want you to know there are some larger themes that James touches on, um, like popcorn throughout this whole book. Uh, Themes of works, versus grace and, uh, you know, works and faith and themes like God's um, role in testing and in temptation and all of these things. That's the main one that we speak to this week. So without further ado, this is part two in our overview of the book of James. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us, down, drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So, don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce righteousness, oh, sorry, does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. Amen. You can have a seat. So as we um, introduced last week in getting into this overview of the book of James, um, man, there's a lot in James. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot to uh, unpack. We are just going to kind of skim over some of the major thoughts and points of this. And one of the things that um, I mentioned last week that we just we always need to uh, come back to and remind ourselves from as we're reading scripture, interpreting it, we have to understand that this This letter by James was written to real people in the first century going through real things, and that James can't mean something for us that was totally different than it meant for them. God can apply this to our lives today, and he he will and he does apply scripture to our lives for the purpose of shaping us and forming us, strengthening us, encouraging us, teaching us how to follow him. 
But James can't say something to us that it wasn't saying to the first readers uh, and the first listeners of this. And so we have to understand, first of all, that there was an actual context that James is writing to. And he's writing to his friends, his community, his family of Jewish believers who were the diaspora. They were the ones dispersed out of Jerusalem under persecution. So they're kind of running for the hills, so to speak, and they're, they're fanning out all over the Roman Empire, all over uh, what is now modern-day Turkey and uh, the ancient Near East. And James is writing to them to encourage them. He's seeing what's going on in their lives. He's seeing the trouble they're encountering, the weight and the pressure they're under, and he's concerned for them. He's concerned. He's got a, a pastoral concern for, for their ability to follow Jesus in the midst of the pressure of society around them. And throughout the book of James, he kind of jumps around all over the place. But throughout that book, we uh, discover that, that these followers of Jesus are experiencing economic persecution. They're being cheated out of their wages. They're losing their jobs and their economic freedom is being stripped away from them. They're experiencing the cost of faithfulness to Jesus and it's hitting them right in the bank account. And he's writing to them to instruct them for how to live for Jesus in the middle of that kind of thing. There's also uh, division and backbiting and dissension and argumentativeness going on within the community. As they face all kinds of pressure from outside, it's, it's actually, um, it's working to destabilize them and fracture them internally. So as they're under pressure in their life, and this is no different for us today, right? When the pressure's really on in your life, when you're really feeling uh, threatened or you're really feeling like, man, I, I don't, I'm overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to respond to these unexpected things going on, when that really happens, we tend to kind of splinter and we kind of regress into the worst parts of ourselves. And the church is doing that. Under the pressure that they're facing, they're turning against each other. And they're, they're being, uh, according to James, they're, they're lashing out at each other in violent kind of outbursts of anger and rage. They're being hypercritical of each other, condemning each other because of the weight they're feeling. They're, they're, they're looking to displace the weight of life and it's coming out in all of these dysfunctional and wrong ways. And James is writing to encourage them. These are people that have lost their culture. They've lost uh, family. They've lost their community. They've lost their traditions. They've been stripped of everything that would bring them safety and security. And James is writing to encourage them to teach them, here's how you follow Jesus in the midst of everything you're going through. And we start here in verse 12 with what, you know, a scholars call a recapitulation. He's about to repeat what he already mentioned in verses two and three, what we talked about last week. He's about to address the trials and the struggles that they're facing. But this time he's got a bit of a different view. If you were here last week, we talked about the purpose and function of those trials. As James talks about them in verses two and three, the purpose and function he identifies at the beginning of the book is the development of your character. James is saying to them in verses two and three and four, you're, you're, you're being tested and tried so that God can refine and develop your character. That he can work in you to fashion you, to form you into the likeness of Jesus so that when the pressure is on, when unexpected things hit your life and you're reeling, your response is consistent with the heart and the character of God, not the worst of you and me. But James now turns his focus here and he says also trials are not just for forming your character. They're actually tied to eternal reward. 
There's a connection here. And this, this, this brings us into very uncomfortable waters sometimes. And I want to just say at the outset, number one, we cannot interpret James through Paul. You can't interpret the book of James through the book of Romans. You can't do that. We have to bring James on his own footing, on his own terms, and wrestle with what James is talking about. But he says here, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, so there's a condition that James is throwing into the mix here. If you've been faithful in testing, if you've been faithful, afterward you will receive a crown of life that God has promised. James is talking about an eternal reality here that is realized when we're faithful to God in the midst of trials and testing. I want to just back up and just quickly go over that word bless. Because that word bless, maybe in our culture, means happy. Uh, Maybe hashtag blessed life is like getting the stuff you want. It's financial blessing. It's economic. It's like, you know, butterflies and goosebumps and warm feelings. That's not what James is talking about. James is saying we're blessed when we pass the test because there's a reward for passing it. James is talking about the kind of blessing that is the fulfillment of the desires of your life, not the desires to have more and attain more, but to be whole to walk in wholeness, to walk in joy and in peace in the middle of the storms of life, to be able to recognize and carry the peace of God through that, not to be buffeted and tossed and turned and and dismembered by the trials and struggles of life, but to carry the peace and the joy and the confidence to know that God is for me, as Silvana mentioned already. So if he's for me, who could possibly overpower him? What could possibly happen in my life to rip me out of his hands, to remove his goodness from my life? It's impossible. And so that blessing that comes when we endure and enter into trials and suffering with God is that we have his very presence. We have his strength. We have his hope. We have his life. We can walk as whole beings, not as splintered, disintegrated beings who are looking at the struggles of our life and each one of them tears us apart in a different way. James is talking about a quality of life here. That's the kind of blessing he's talking about. You're blessed, you're made whole, you're completed when you endure these things. James is beginning in this book here to underscore a process, and you can write this down in the notes side of your book if you have it. There's a a bit of a sequence here that we see in James, but also just in scripture. This was something that my mentor kinda deposited into my life. I wanna deposit it into yours. Here's the sequence. Promise from God. We see this all through scripture, from Abraham, Moses, all the way to the New Testament. There's a promise from God. Here's what I've made you for. Here's what I'm calling you into. Here's what I've created you for. Here's what I am present to do in your life. There's a promise from God. Then there's testing. And this is all this consistent across the, the width of scripture. There's a promise Then comes testing. And that testing, like James says, is meant to test our character, to refine us, to shape us and mold us, to test our heart, our motivation, whether we really are surrendered to Jesus or not. Whether our heart is really directed to him or it's directed to other things. Where do you go and what do you do when the pressure's on? 
So there's a promise, then there's testing, and then there's a promotion or a, re- or a reward. So often, I, if I map this over my life, I can clearly see moments of like feeling like, God, you have sort of promised this to me. You've spoken this over me and into my life. Then testing comes and I fall off the wagon. I just, I come apart. And I don't receive the promotion or the reward that God has intended. So we go back through the order of things, back through testing so that I can learn to stabilize my life under the leadership of Jesus and not be fractured in a hundred different pieces. I can learn to follow him when the pressure's on, when the heat is on, when life is going in every other way than I thought it should or I would like it to. So there's a promise, there's testing, and then there's promotion. And many of us, and I would include myself in this, we don't pass the test, and so we don't step into greater measures of God's authority and his presence in our life, greater capacity to carry more of his kingdom. And James is outlining these principles here. So the follower of Jesus is intended by God to pass through many kinds of trials, James says, to test their faith so that they can be approved by God. James says, after they have victoriously endured these times of difficulty, allowing the testing and the trials to shape and develop them to be complete and mature, They will be rewarded by God. They will be blessed by God. That crown of life that James is talking about is a victor's crown, and they awarded it to those who were victorious in battle or in athletics. And James is linking here. Again, this this becomes very unsettling for some of us. James is linking faithfulness in your life to God to the crown of life. James is linking how you live to how God responds at the end of your life. He's linking the two, and we have to wrestle with that. We have to deeply wrestle with that. You can go and study this on your own. James is not opposed to Paul. James is not at war with Paul. Some people think he is. He's not. We actually have... Uh, a misunderstanding, I believe, of what Paul was talking about in Romans as it related to works of the law. We've mischaracterized and classified what that means. James, speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, was saying faithfulness to God is how you walk in your life and what God is looking at. You're already part of this covenant family, guys. You're already in this covenant community, but God is testing how you're going to live, where your heart is leaning and where you're directing your life. I want to move on to another ginormous philosophical can of worms that James opens up for us, and we're certainly not going to solve it today. I wouldn't even know how to. But James goes on to say, remember when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. I'm gonna just stop there for a moment. The word for testing and temptation are the same word in the Greek. Temptation is the verb form of that word, but they're the same word. And so, I mean, People much smarter than I debate back and forth about which words should be which and how we should understand them. But what I think James is uh, beginning to instruct his friends, as you're under pressure, as your life from a human point of view seems to be going the wrong direction, you're facing economic persecution, there's trouble in your relationships, everything seems to be falling apart, you need to be careful where you attribute the source of that. That's what James is saying. And there's Two, uh, two sides to this coin. There's trials 
and temptation are two sides of the same thing that James is talking about. And what James begins to instruct them is to say, you need to be careful where you attribute the source of this. Because as they were living out their lives under the the pressure and the weight of what they were going on, some apparently in that community were being tempted to say, God, he's the one who's leading me into this temptation. He's the one who's ruining my life. His plans for me aren't good. Where is God in the middle of all of this stuff? Why, why in the world would God lead me here? Would, would he allow me to experience this? God is not good. He's not faithful. How could he be? Look at what's going on in my life. That's the kinds of things they're saying. Where is God in this? How can he be good when this is my reality? When I'm faced with this? So God must be tempting me. He must be trying to test me and tempt me. That's not in a way that works for my good, but actually is leading me to further bondage and trouble. And James is saying, you have to be careful where you attribute the source. It's clear in scripture, and James affirms it, that God tests. He tested Abraham. He tested Jesus. Peter talks about his testing. Paul talks about his testing. All through scripture, it's clear that God tests. But now James makes a distinction. God doesn't tempt. The purpose of God's testing is not to lead you into destructive patterns of behavior. The purpose, the heart and the intent of God's testing in your life is good. It's actually so that you grow and you're strengthened, that you have a greater capacity to endure the realities of life, to be faithful to him while the pressure is on. The heart of God is the essential ingredient that James is talking about here. And his heart for you is good. His heart for you is pure. He wants you to experience peace and joy and life, but we misconstrue the the troubles we're facing and the, the pressure we're under. We misconstrue those from a human perspective for God's punishment. Where we sometimes say, how could he be good? There's no way he's good. Look at what my life is like. And so James is being very clear with his friends. When God tests you, it's for your good. When God tests you, it's because he has a vision for your life that he's calling you up into. He has a plan for you and a purpose for you that cannot be accomplished without you passing through this with endurance and faith and trust in him. When he's testing you, it's because he has a vision for your life that he's calling you up into. He's not trying to sucker you He's not a God who does bait and switch. That's not the nature of God. That's not the character of God. And so James is saying what happens in our life is we enter into testing. Then we have some choices to make. How are we going to walk through this? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? How do we view this? How do we look at that? That's where temptation enters the picture. When we're in this period of testing, when we're in the wilderness like Jesus, Satan was testing him. God led him in the wilderness to be tested. Now, now the emphasis is on Jesus. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond? How are you going to react? And James is talking to his friends and he's saying, look, like you're reacting with outbursts of anger. You're reacting in violence toward each other. You're you're taking this testing and you're taking the bait of the enemy in the middle of the testing. And he's playing to everything in you that's dysfunctional and broken and you're taking it and you're running with it and then you're blaming God for what's happening in your life. And James is saying it doesn't work that way. Here... James attributes that sequence, if we move on here. Remember, don't say God is tempting me. 
God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. He's good, he's not trying to trick you. There is nothing in God's capacity that would allow him in his nature and in his character to tempt you in a way to try and produce brokenness or hurt or pain or sin. He's not testing you and tempting you so that you enter into sin. That's not the character of the heart of God. James says temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. In James's Hebrew Jewish culture, um, they had three views of where testing and trials came from. Their first was God, that God allows it somehow in his sovereignty. He, he's the initiator of it. That leads us into a whole quagmire of philosophical questions. The second view was that uh, it's Satan. Satan is the one behind all of that. The third view was that it's you, it's your flesh. With kind of in brackets, the possibility of Satan kind of intervening and intermixing in there. And James is saying here, you've got to examine your own heart. Don't just say it's God doing it. Don't just even say it's the devil doing it. The stuff going on in your life, be very careful how quickly you attribute the source to Satan, to the evil one. It's has been shocking to me in the last few years how confidently and quickly some of you you attributed everything in COVID to the devil. Either you know a lot of things I don't know, which could be very true, or you're just being presumptuous in assigning the source of everything difficult we've experienced in life to Satan. And that's not always the case. We've got to be careful with that. We have to walk in humility and not presumption. I, I don't, I'm not on that level of pay grade where I know what God is sovereignly doing over the whole earth through all of history. I'm not privy to his conversations in the throne room where he's saying all of the things that would lead me to make definitive statements about who or what is behind everything in my life. We have to walk with humility and we have to walk with a sense of personal responsibility. James is saying, it's your decisions. When the test has come, you've decided to delve into the worst parts of your dysfunctional reactions and responses. You're the one getting angry. You're the one lashing out. You're the one who's, who's kind of in fear and anxiousness turning to all of the wrong vices. It's coming from within you. We need to be really careful where we isolate and locate all the struggles in our life. We need to be really careful. I don't know. I don't know what is going on up in the heavenlies as we endure and face these things that we have here or what Christians have for millennia? I don't know. And what James is bringing us back to is not to get fixated on that, but to keep our attention focused on how we're responding. How are you gonna live through this? In, in COVID, in the later parts of it, I, I kind of stopped asking God or, or making the statements, this is from here or this is from there or God, you're doing this or you're not doing that or Satan's doing this or not doing that. I just felt like God saying, Andrew, it doesn't matter where you land. It doesn't matter what your conviction is, whether it's way over here or way over here. What matters is how you carry it. What matters is how you express my character. And it, so it doesn't matter. It didn't matter 
what my convictions were about the Freedom Convoy or masks or vaccines or any of that. None of that mattered. What mattered is how I walked through it. Did I walk with gentleness and humility and grace? I sat with people in my office every week who were railing on me over and over for not aligning to their specific conviction on this. And the test for me was, how are you going to respond, Andrew? Are you going to delve into argument and anger and frustration? Are you canceling a whole group of people? Or are you seeing them through the mercy and conviction and compassion that I have for them, that they're wrestling deeply with these broken areas in our world and in their life, and they don't know what to do just like you don't know what to do? The question is not to be fixated on what the trial is, like we said last week. It's how are you calling me to walk through this? Our, our prayer for wisdom that James talked about last week. What is our prayer for wisdom? God, what do you want to do in my life through this? That's the first prayer. What is it that you're putting your finger on in my life? What is it that you want to shape and form in me? What is it about my responses and my reactions to the unexpected realities and pressures of life that you want to put your finger on, to shape it more into your character and image, not mine? First question for wisdom, when we're asking God, what are you wanting to do in me? Second question, how do I pray about this? How do I pray? I'm astonished again when it comes to praying for healing, when it comes to anything, how quickly we just jump into saying stuff. We just jump into praying whatever, whatever comes to our mind. That's my automatic tendency too, but God has been teaching me, wait, hold on. You don't know how to pray about this, Andrew. You don't know how to pray about the brokenness in your family or what's going on in these situations or for, for all of your friends here. You, don't, you, you gotta ask me first. So wisdom is saying, God, what do you want to do in me? And second, how do I pray about this? What is a fundamentally, how do you want me to view this? How do I pray in a way that's consistent with your heart in this? And so often when I do that, when we do that, our prayers shift. Our prayers shift a little bit from God fix this, remove this, heal this, change this now, so would your kingdom come? God, I'm willing to walk through this because I'm with you. And this is where Paul in Romans 8 is saying, look, God can redeem anything the enemy's meant for evil and turn it into good. That's the capacity he has. So it's not about always eradicating the struggles of our life. It's teaching us to lean into his presence and intimacy, knowing that he can turn anything that the enemy's meant for evil into good if we're willing to be faithful to him in the middle of it. There was some deep, deep good that God did in my heart and in my soul in the last few years. I fundamentally changed as a pastor in the last few years. I, I hope for the better. <laughs> Time will tell, I guess. My perspective of you as my friends and church family fundamentally shifted from one where I'm just kind of leading and leading an organization to one where God is calling me to serve you in your places of need and hurt and pain. To lower myself and walk with you, be willing to walk through stuff with you. There is good in my life that's come through the pain of the last few years. God can redeem anything in your life. He can redeem the failures of your life. The disappointments that you carry. This is what James is talking about. Look, when the testing comes, you have a choice. How am I going to respond to this? Am I going to respond? Am I going to lash out? Am I going to vent? Am I going to, you know move into the dysfunctional habits of my life? Am I gonna turn to pornography or alcohol or drugs or whatever? Am I gonna go down that road? Am I gonna medicate myself? Am I gonna binge watch Yellowstone and 1883 and then 1923 and every sub-series for the next you know, 15 days? I don't know, when we're shelling the, 
when Rochelle and the kids were gone, I watched the prequel, the 1883. And I, this is embarrassing, but I'll admit it to you because I texted Rochelle and I started watching it and I got like totally hooked. And then it was like one o'clock and I'm like, I just have four more episodes. I can do it, right? It's two o'clock. I've like got two more episodes. I stayed up till four in the morning. I watched all 10 episodes in one sitting because Rochelle wasn't there to kind of slap me on the side of the head. But for some of us, that kind of behavior, and, and, and for me, that would be one way that I try and calm the storms of my life. I, I just, I go into la-la land with a series or something. I, I want to disconnect from reality. I'm, that's not even healthy. So the question is, when testing comes, how do you respond? And James is saying, God's heart in the testing is not for your demise and your destruction, it's for your good. He goes on to say, he goes on to say that these desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So he's contrasting here two realities. One, that the natural outcome of turning to sin of turning to brokenness, the natural outcome of that will be death in your life. It'll be a numbing, spiritual death. It'll lead you to all of the places that rob you and strip you and enchain you and bind you and eventually kill you. That's the natural outflow. We, in our, our human arrogance, we go, I can, I can handle it. I can enter into a little bit of that. That's, I, I know when to put the brakes on. No, no, no. James is saying, you be careful. The natural progression is that when we choose sin, when we choose these broken kind of responses to crisis in our life, the natural outflow of that will be to harden our hearts, to lead to spiritual death and eventually death. But the natural response to faithfulness and testing leads to life. So James is contrasting these for us. Just like the natural progression from conception in a human point of view leads to birth. That's, we, that's just an automatic thing that happens. The automatic thing that's triggered when you and I turn to sin, and brokenness and dysfunction in our lives, when we go back to those places again and again, the automatic thing that's triggered is that moves you toward death. That's what it produces in your life and in my life. James goes on to say, don't be misled, dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. What's James saying? He's saying, number one, God is not into testing you so that you can fail and fall. When God tests you, it's for your good. When we are dragged off into those broken areas and responses. We gotta own that. We have to take responsibility for our part in that. And then he goes on to affirm that God fundamentally is good. That everything that comes from him toward us is for our good. It's a gift meant to strengthen and encourage and fill us and renew us. Everything that's coming from God is good. He's not a flake. He's not sort of, he's not like, you know, one day hot and cold, hot and cold. He's not like that. He's entirely consistent in his desire for goodness from his kingdom to come into your life, to fill you and renew you. Every thought of God's towards you is good. Everyone. He doesn't waffle on this spectrum. 
James says he doesn't shift like the shadows. He's not elusive in that way. He's not hard to understand. God, why are you doing this for me? What, what are you doing in my life? It's always meant to give us life and hope and peace to produce in us the things that emanate from his being. He's always like that. He's consistently like that. It doesn't matter how many times you fail. It doesn't matter how dysfunctional things get. It doesn't matter how deep you are in the pit of the stuff of your life. His heart to you is always good. And this is what James is saying. What he carries in his essence and nature is fundamentally good. And his heart is to bring that into your life. So even when you face testing and trials, even when stuff seems to be falling apart, God has a redemptive purpose for that in your life. He can turn all of it for good. All of the mistakes, all of the, shoot, I would like to take that back. All of those things, he can turn them for good. He doesn't change. Jesus said it this way in Matthew. He said, our father knows how to give good gifts to his children. And then he looked at the people around him and he said, you as parents, as fathers, if your son come and, comes and asks you for a loaf of bread, are you going to give him a snake? Are you going to trick him into something that's going to hurt him and is harmful for him? No, never in the same way. The testing that God invites us into is never to trick us into harm. It's never to enslave us. It's always, it's always to bring about more of his character in our life, the fullness of his being in our life. So there's the promise from God. Just a question. What do you feel like God is promising you? What has he spoken over your life? What has he called you to? What has he invited you to? What do you feel like, you know, in the quiet places when you're with him that he's speaking over you? There's always a promise from God, which is followed by testing. And when we're faithful to endure that, as James says, then comes promotion and reward. We get to step in authority into greater measures, greater capacity to carry his kingdom. So this, what James is talking about, are the two sides of this coin. The trial becomes temptation when we respond through self rather through, than through God-given wisdom. The trial becomes temptation when we respond through self. God, I refuse to experience this right now. I refuse to walk through this. God, there's no way that this can produce anything good in me. I refuse to enter into this. When we make that response out of the self, then temptation has taken hold and it produces a natural outcome. Both James and Jesus locate temptation in the heart of man. So just like the natural outcome of giving into temptation is death, the natural outcome of faithfulness to God when the pressure is on is life. It's greater capacity to endure greater things. I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of follower of Jesus who is developing a greater capacity to endure whatever is going to come down the pipe in the next years of my life. I want to develop the capacity to weather the storms and faithfulness to God. I want to develop the capacity not to come unraveled when everybody around me on my street is coming unraveled. I want to develop the capacity to carry peace in areas where there's conflict and brokenness. I want to carry gentleness where there's strife and anger. I want to carry the fruit of the Spirit of God in me in such a way that that is Evidence in and of itself. Evidence in and of itself that God is worth giving my life to. You know what's interesting? When you study, when you study the early martyrs, the people around James's time, when you study 
those stories, you begin to see this consistent response from the people all around them in the Colosseums as Christians are being ripped limb from limb by wild animals and as they're being killed by gladiators, as they're being dipped in vats of boiling oil and burned alive, the consistent response of the people watching was awe and wonderment. Who is this God that they're serving that they can carry such peace through such great pain? The consistent response of the Roman culture around them was that doesn't happen in my life. That doesn't happen when I worship at all of these other temples. What in the world is going on in their life? Who is this God they're serving that they can endure such pain and trial and hardship with such humility and gentleness and brokenness and compassion? That was the consistent response. That was the the embers that ignited the fire that eventually overthrew the Roman government. It wasn't power. It wasn't warfare. It wasn't violence against the government. It was gentleness in enduring trial and suffering that attracted people to the kingdom. You can read it. You can read it in the Roman historians, in the Jewish historians. They write about it wondering, what is it? that God is doing, who are they serving? How do they endure these things? And for all of the effort of the Roman emperors to stamp out Christianity, it failed miserably again and again, not because they opposed them with force, but because they walked through trial and temptation and built the capacity to endure and sustain in the middle of it. I don't know what's coming in our world. (laughs) I don't know if we're going to be shooting down more balloons or what in the world we're going to be doing. I don't want to be known as somebody who just jumps up on a soapbox and starts barking out my convictions. I want to be known as somebody who walks with peace in the middle of the storm. I want to be known as someone who would be a safe harbor for someone else who's coming unraveled with the pressure of life. I want to be known as someone who would carry compassion and gentleness, the kingdom presence of God into broken areas. This is what Jesus did time and time again. He undid the destructive realities of the kingdom of darkness, the brokenness of the world. When he healed, it was through compassion. When he operated in the miraculous, it was never to produce a spectacle It was never to draw attention to himself like a traveling salesman. When he worked, he was undoing the brokenness and dysfunction and destruction of the kingdom of darkness. And he was doing it in this backwater little area called Galilee. And his life has shaped, has shaped the world for thousands of years. That's the kind of person that I want to be like James is saying, when God tests you, it's out of his character of goodness. He never changes. God does not change. He doesn't bait and switch. What he offers you in your life is good, and what he gives you is good. When God is at work, it's for the purpose of his goodness to be revealed and explored. Let's stand together. Liz, I want to just invite you to come too. There's so much more we could talk about. There's so much more we could dive into. James's exhortation, when the pressure is on, is this. You must all be quick to listen. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't just start firing off assumptions, acting like you know what God knows. You don't, I don't. Be quick to listen. Don't be quick to offer your opinion. Don't be quick to offer your own wisdom even. Be quick to listen. 
be slow to speak. Man, my tongue has got me into so many troubles. My pride and my arrogance, my presumption. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I think this is one of the things that grieved me so much about my own response in the last few years and the response of the church was we got angry. We got angry at each other. We got angry at our government. We got angry at everything and everyone we could. I I did. I struggled with that just like you did. And it's just grieved my heart so much that that's the witness of the church in our culture is we can't stop shouting at people. We can't stop fighting with each other. We can't stop yelling about what we think and what we want. And James is saying wisdom, the nature of God in the midst of trials looks like being slow to speak quick to listen and slow to get angry. He says human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. Another word you could throw in there is justice. Your anger very rarely is consistent with God's expression of anger. We get angry in response to stuff. Anger is a secondary emotion, right? That's what really smart psychologists tell us. (laughs) My anger very rarely looks like God's anger. His anger is tempered and measured. It comes out of great patience. It's always motivated by his love and it's always motivated by good. Our anger is to tear down and to level off and destroy and dismember and hurt and throw people into the mud. But God's anger is not like that. So James is saying, don't give in to that. Don't let that fester in your heart because when it does, it'll produce death and brokenness. Our human anger does not produce the fruit of the kingdom of God in conflict. It's not an expression of God's justice almost all of the time. So we need to be careful. He ends by saying, get rid of all filth and evil in your lives. Put a line in the sand. Take sin seriously. The stuff you watch on TV, the stuff you watch on your computer, the places you turn for pleasure, the things that you look to, to define your life and to give meaning to it, draw a line in the sand. Humbly accept God's word in your hearts, for that is the thing that has the power to save your soul. You know, I was in Tampa Bay just for a day and a half with a few other guys at a men's thing and One of the speakers there mentioned something going on in Kentucky and then Marilyn this morning said, have you heard what's going on in Kentucky? So I looked it up, Marilyn, and there's like a a breakout of of a revival happening at Asbury Theological Seminary. Some of my favorite theologians are professors there in Kentucky and I was reading about it. And you know how that started, which is always how renewal starts in your life and my life. As James is saying, it started with repentance. It started by being grieved about the stuff we've allowed into our life that grieves the heart of God. It started with brokenness and humility. It started last week and the service hasn't ended yet. It's still going. This pastor that was speaking In Tampa, he said, I'm going next week. I want to see what God is doing there. 
renewal in your life, the joy that you're looking for, the fulfillment and the peace and the hope begins with repentance and brokenness. It begins with drawing a line in the sand and saying, I'm not going to give in to that stuff anymore. I'm not going to define my life by what I want and what pleases me and what my eyes see and, and, and every temptation around me. It begins with brokenness and humility. David said, a humble and contrite heart you will not despise, God. The renewal you're looking for in your life, the fulfillment and purpose begins with repentance and brokenness and humility. I want to invite you just to close your eyes. I just want to ask Holy Spirit in this moment, you would bring conviction to us today that you would uh, just illuminate for us even on an individual basis and even maybe together as a whole church family where have we grieved you where have we taken the bait and responded to your testing responded to that and given into temptation as a result where have we crumbled and collapsed under the weight of broken relationships and broken world around us? Where have we crumbled and, and, and given into temptation in our life as a result? I just ask Holy Spirit that you would speak words of life and truth. that we would receive the exhortation of James. That it's not about getting up on our soapbox to declare where we stand with things, it's how we walk. It's how we live. It's how we respond in the middle of the test that God is after. He's after your heart and my heart. I just want to ask Holy Spirit if there are any tests that you have been inviting us to. I just ask right now that you would illuminate those, that you would confirm those for each one here. That you would uh, just bring clarity as they reflect on the stuff they're walking through, the condition of their heart, their, their, their life, their family. What are the tests that you've been inviting them to? I just ask that you'd speak to them right now. And if you feel like God is bringing something to your attention, I want to just invite you right now, just under the quietness of your own breath, just to say, God, what are you wanting to do in me through that? And then a second question, Father, how do I pray? How Teach me to pray. Teach me to walk in your ways. I just ask Holy Spirit that you would just deposit into each person here just a practical next step. What are you wanting to shape in our character and in our life? What, what areas of brokenness or dysfunction are you wanting to put your finger on? What are you wanting to challenge us with in our character? And then we just ask, Father, that you would teach us to pray about that, that you would teach us to align our perspective with yours as we look at and survey our life in this season. What is it you're doing in our lives? How are you working? And how are you inviting us to follow you? God, you will redeem everything the enemy's meant for evil. You have the power and the strength to do it. Teach us to follow you into that. We submit our lives to you again. In Jesus' name, I just forbid any spirit of condemnation that is trying to lie or masquerade as the voice of the Holy Spirit. I just command you to be silent condemnation. In Jesus' name, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
There's nothing that's not redeemable by our King. There's nothing that's not recoverable or irreparable. There's nothing too broken. There's nothing too sinful. There's nothing too great. Jesus, we're thankful today because you will never leave us or forsake us. We're thankful today that we don't face these tests alone, that we face them with you and your presence living in us, working in us, working through us, giving us strength and capacity. Father, I pray that you would give us, your people, strength and capacity this week to live for you, to be wise and discerning with the tests that we're experiencing. And to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God, that you are good, that you don't change, you don't trick us. Your heart toward us is good. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to continue doing the work you need to in our hearts and in our lives. Amen.